Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And this week, Cam and I are joined by Matthew Fitzpatrick, currently the 20th ranked golfer in the world. And this was a really cool chat, one that we really enjoyed. Matt is definitely cut from the same cloth as us and the way that he goes about his game and getting better. He has accomplished quite a lot in his young career. Not only is he a five-time European tour winner, he's a U.S. amateur champ, Ryder Cup player, and he's really established himself as one of the best golfers in the world right now. But I can't think of a player that better represents just the whole philosophy behind Earn Your Edge. He takes a very sophisticated and detailed and intelligent approach to his improvement. Uh, he's been on a steady rise up the world rankings the last few years, and you'll hear in this conversation how he's leaving no stone unturned. And he's pretty meticulous in his training and just his overall approach to getting better. And it's a big reason why, despite maybe not having the distance of some of his peers in the top 20 in the world, he's still able to find an edge in other areas. And those are really the types of people that we look forward to chatting with the most and learning from. He's down to earth. He's a really smart guy that offers a lot to learn from uh, in both his mindset and the processes that he's using and he shares with us here in this chat. So please enjoy episode 75 of the Earn Your Edge podcast. Before you dig in, we wanted to send you over to TotalGolfTrainer.com. They are giving our listeners a 10% discount on any product by using the code EARNYOUREDGE. We've discussed this product in the past and we're starting to see it actually pop up on the ranges of PGA Tour players with other coaches and players. It's the little black foam rod with a red ball on the top. And it's a really versatile training aid that can help you improve your chipping, your pitching, bunker play, full swing uh, with a number of settings that really just provide instant feedback on almost any technical cue that you like. And we love it because it's so adjustable. It's really our Swiss army knife in this one tool, the Total Golf Trainer V2 can do the job of a number of the older tools that we've used in the past, swing guide, a hanger, impact snap, many others. You can just adjust the Total Golf Trainer V2 to replace some of those other older popular training aids. And we can leave all those at home. And when we travel, we just take the Total Golf Trainer V2 to do the job of many. So head to TotalGolfTrainer.com, use the code, earn your edge for the discount. But now enjoy our chat with Matt Fitzpatrick. We usually start these conversations by just having some kind of understanding of your early involvement, not in just golf, but sport. And just because it always, there's always some interesting aspects to the upbringings of, of high performers that kind of we can associate to eventual success in their sport. And I think that that conversation is especially interesting with you because your family, your household produced not just one, but two world-class performers where you've got a brother who is a collegiate star. He's played on a Walker Cup team. So there, there was clearly something special uh, at the Fitzpatrick household. And I, I'm curious to hear you describe the influence on your parents, on, on both of you guys. Like, How were they as golf parents, uh, best you can remember? Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm going to be biased, but they're as good as I could have asked for, really. My big thing with my mom and dad is that they were never pushy. They would never say, you need to go out and practice or you need to play this event. You know, it was always optional. The biggest thing that I learned from that is, and like it's my motto, I guess, in life really is like, you've, you've got to work hard. If you want something, you've got to work hard. It doesn't just come come to you. It's, you know, it's if I'm not practicing today, my dad would be like, not in a pushy way at all. It would be a case of, well, you're not practicing, but someone else in another country or another place is. And, and that's, that's what sort of drove me on. My dad was always very, very competitive. Whatever we did, football, golf, table tennis, 
badminton, any, anything we played together, it was always very, very competitive. And I got that competitiveness from him. So it was a case of, well, okay, if someone else is practicing out there and I'm not, then I want to be better than them. So I, I you know, I would go out and, and do that myself. I, I wanted to be the best and, and that's what I would do. And for me, it was, it was very easy that I, I would, you know, I would, I would listen to mum and dad and I would, you know, that's what I, but my brother is probably a little bit more headstrong and he's sort of a, a little bit more and he thinks he's right or of the time. And um, <laughs> yeah, he, he, but he's, don't get me wrong, he's doing great. But uh, yeah, that, that's sort of, we, we are quite opposite actually. It's that whole second born thing, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. You pinpointed one of the critical cornerstones of getting uh, a lead or high, a world-class performer, becoming a world-class performer in anything, and that's really working hard. It's one thing to put in the sweat and develop the calluses and work so hard that your hands bleed, but it's another thing to develop a secondary and maybe even just as important set of skills, and that's the intelligence that goes with working at your game in a smart manner. And I think I read... This is way back, and um, in research for this, kind of looking through the archives of interviews from you, I read where we're mentioning the conversations, perhaps on the way home or at home, that you and your parents would have about the events that you played and the shots that you hit. And in my mind, that rung a bell, and that bell was, wow, they're actually causing him to think the game of golf versus just play or the game of golf. Can you take us inside that conversation? Because it's a really essential skill that I think every parent should try to cultivate and every golfer should try and cultivate, which is thinking about why particular shots happen because oftentimes it's can be pulled out that it was a tactical error or a club selection error versus it just being a physical error, meaning I made a bad swing, right? Yeah, the, the biggest thing for me growing up, there was two things. It was like obviously the technical side of it and then there was course management for me. The biggest impact was course management and my dad. I know my caddy, Billy Foster, has been out to see some amateur tournaments and he watched players, you know, just hit driver straight into a bunker, you know, not not using the brain. But a, a lot of the times the conversations weren't too comfortable with my dad, like not in a nasty way, just, you know, I probably knew I was wrong and like me being stubborn, it, you don't want to admit that you're wrong, do you? Who, who wants to admit that they're wrong? But a lot of it was, was that it was, you know, and it's really funny Mike is actually staying in the house with me here. Mike, you know, he knows all these conversations. He sees them. And it even happens now. It's, you know, I have a professional caddy and Billy Foster on the bag. And sometimes we can come off tournaments or rounds and it's like, so why did you hit that club there? You know, on that hole. And what do you do that? And I just think to myself, you know, why are we still doing this? Like, I now have a professional caddy. You know, we work together to try and do the best thing. But no, growing up, it was a lot of why was why did you hit that club or what did you think about this or what do you think about on this hole or and like you say, really, when I look back, when you put it like that, it, it was it was making me think. And when I come to that situation again, oh right, well I remember having a conversation about that. I know to do this or I know to do whatever. That was so helpful for me when I look back that I never really had the length. But like growing up, when you know some kids hit it a long way. I had a big advantage when it came to course management. I felt like I, I really plotted my way well. I made plenty of notes in my yardage book compared to others. You know, from what I look around now, not to brag, I, I don't see many guys do it, make notes now, you know, on pro level. And sort of growing up as an amateur, you're thinking, oh, you know, the pros must make loads. Of it. But it's not actually the truth. And it's quite funny to see that, really. But yeah, for, for me personally, I was always 
sort of one step ahead in my mind, thanks to my parent or my dad, particular on course management, you know, thinking my way around better than, than who I was playing against, really. You said that you were pushed and, and kind of motivated to say, all right, well, somebody else is working hard. I better work hard too. I would love to know what that hard work looked like as a youth player, as a young golfer. Maybe that's with your brother. What's the age gap with you and your brother? Four years. So okay. I'm 20. Okay. I just turned 26. He's 21. So. Yeah. So I assume that that there was some support. Like we always talk about the parent relationship, but there's a unique opportunity to talk about maybe how a sibling relationship may be a facilitator to success. And maybe that's from the time you're training together. I'd love to get your take on that. And then just so we have an idea of, well, this is what hard work really looks like that eventually leads to this kind of success. For me, the hard work that, or the work that I did when I was practicing was the days that I can remember it, it'd be, you know, I'd finish school, I'd walk up to my golf club, which fortunately was only 10 minutes away from my, I mean, three minutes maximum in a car, 10 minute walk from my school. So I'd have my mum and dad drop my clubs off in the morning in the pro shop. I'd go up to the golf club in the afternoon, pick them up, hit balls. I mean, mainly hit balls, chip, putt, just do everything. You know, I wouldn't say there was necessarily a set structure, but I had an idea of what, I, you know, I did a bit of everything effectively. Didn't necessarily play a lot. I'm not really a player, to be honest. I much prefer to practice. But that's kind of what I did most of the time. You know, weekends then it'd be dropped on summer holidays. It'd be dropped off in the morning, picked up in an evening. You know, a lot of stuff you've probably, probably heard before from, from a lot of guys. But for me, having a younger brother, with the age difference was kind of awkward a little bit because when I was like between 9 to 14, he was too young to sort of be coming up to the golf club and practicing. He was also playing football. He's a very, very good footballer as well. And he was doing a lot of that as well, more so than I was at that age. We, he was probably playing more half and half as I was opposed to, you know, 70, 30. And then once I got to 17, 16, 17, 18, I was traveling a little bit more, playing more tournaments in the summer when my brother was maybe at home and, you know, one parent would come with me and, and one parent would be at home with, with my brother really so we, we kind of never really got the overlap of we, we'd work together and practice like probably everyone thinks that we did it, it just never really worked out that way but I would say now we're closer on that aspect as to you know if we're in this area or you'll come practice with me or I'll go practice with him whatever it is really so does he ever get a leg up on you these days no, never. <laughs> He's too slow for that. He's too slow. But no, I've just been trying to help him a lot, really, because, I mean, personally, I'm a very structured person when it comes to my game and stuff. And he, he's just not, like I said, he's, he's opposite. It's sort of, it, it's, um, it's very feely. Oh, I feel like doing this today and this yeah. today. And, um, <laughs> Flying by so, the city yeah. of his pants. Yeah, basically. Basically. We hope to explore the, the depths of uh, how you look at your game and how you pick apart, how you're improving at certain skills. But there's a question that I want to go back to that we typically ask, and that's a question about leveling up, which you did very, very frequently as a young lad when you won the boys amateur and then you played in uh, the open and you won the USM as a teenager, a low M at the 2014 US Open. Like that's swimming in a very deep pool with some very, very big fish. But 
yet you tended to succeed as you kept on taking those steps forward. And so the question kind of goes back to really just asking for your opinion, asking if there are things that you can point to that maybe you did or maybe your parents did that were nurtured, or whether you think it's just something that you were bred with, that you always did in any sport that you played in, that you stepped up to the higher stage, so to speak, and succeeded. I don't know, really. I, I just sounds terrible. I just love, you know, I love winning. <laughs> like everyone loves winning. And my parents always kept me very grounded, as do all my friends at home, as does everyone around me. You know, they keep me very grounded. I don't get ahead of myself. I'm never one to go into a tournament like, oh, this is, you know, this field is terrible. I'm going to dominate. Or I feel like a lot of guys do have that mentality. That's just not me as a person. And, and I think my, I like to kind of go under the radar and, and sort of go that way as to have low expectations. And trust me, I've had many moments where I've had high expectations and low confidence and not being, not being good at all, like plenty, plenty of times. So I've had that. But when, when I feel like I, I've not necessarily played my best, but when I'm, you know, in with a chance of, of winning, I, I absolutely, I feel like I take it because I just feel like right now I'm put myself in the position. Like I want to, now I kind of get the other mentality of, right now I'm going to show that I can, I can play basically. And I don't know where it came from really. I don't know if it was just pure competitiveness growing up and not caring about the, the result, you know, whether, whether I lost just all I wanted to do was win. It's difficult to put it down to because, you know, my, my parents aren't some, you know, kind of freak parents that were breeding me for, for, to, for success. And, and likewise, that you know, the coaching I had, it was never crazy intense and this is what you got to do. It was, you know, I'd, I'd see Mike probably once a month. We'd go and figure out, I'd go and see him and I need to tell me, okay, we need to do a bit of this and a bit of that. And I'd do that, go away, come back. And it was never really crazy. So I think, it, I don't know, I guess it just comes naturally, to be honest. We hate to hear that because yeah. we can't help people when it, when it comes naturally. But you're supposed to give us all the secrets here. Yeah, right? yeah I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. that's right. Well, you, you did say you, you gave us something there that I want to hit on. You said that there have been times where your performance hasn't met your expectations. And as Cameron alluded to, all of those really, really successful achievements during your amateur career, I would assume that your rookie season on the European tour was one of those times where at the very beginning, it didn't meet the high standards that you have. You you had a really good finish early on in South Africa and then missed seven cuts in the first 11 events. And so I, I kind of have a, a two-part question because after that, you go on a run of, of uh, eight top tens, you make it, you have a good finish in the, in the tour championship. So I would love to know whether or not you had to deal with any doubt or if that crept in at all in that early part when it was a little bit of a slow start. And then second, know what the heck you figured out. Like, I would love to know how you had such a dramatic increase in results because it seemed like you just kind of flipped a switch and really got it going. Yeah, it's a really tough one, to be honest. I don't really know what happened. I guess if I think about the first part of the year, this is probably a bit of a boring answer. The first part of the year, it's it's South Africa, it's the Middle East, it's more travel, it's Malaysia. There's a lot of different grass types there. And for me, I always struggled on, you know, strong Kikuya in South Africa, for example, is, is not my favorite. I have a very steep attack angle, the ball sits up and that was never really anything for me. And I think it probably showed up when I first came out on tour. I'd not had the experience of that before and, and it was all new and, and I didn't really play very well. 
mentally I was just getting frustrated, but at the same time I felt like I was close. I remember my first ever tournament with a tour card in South Africa. I hit like I played solid and I remember hitting 16 greens with 33 putts. And, and I remember speaking to my dad, I missed the cut by one. And it's like, well, you know, all of a sudden hold two putts and I'm making the cut and have a decent weekend. You're finishing 40th then it's not bad. You first, you know, first year out on tour, that's what you're looking for. And it's just little things like that. But then I don't really know what happened at the back end of the year, probably back into the summer. The big change that I felt that I made was actually when I, I had some good results before this, but this is when I really felt like I kick-started was in, in Switzerland in, in 2015. For whatever reason, I just couldn't hit a draw. I was always a drawer. I couldn't hit a draw on the range. We tried everything. I was just in a fade. It was just weird. I didn't have Trapman at that time. I wasn't really Must have been that. the altitude. It was, it was so cheese. weird. <laughs> yeah, it's one or the other. I mean, must have put weight on from the cheese or what, but literally... And then I went through the golf course with Mike in my head and it's like, okay, well, first to fade, second to fade, third to fade, fourth to fade. And we're just going through the golf course. I'm like, this is a fadeless golf course apart from 18. And I went with that, finished second, played unbelievable. And then from there, all of a sudden, like I think it must have just done the world of good for my confidence. And I was like, well, I'm just going to stick with this. Kept playing the whole rest of the year and played really, really well. And, you know, fortunately got first win and... I think that was a big difference for me, just having the fade. It was always a left, was always a bad shot for me. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Titleist, and we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T Series. The engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long standing number one iron on the PGA Tour delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. It sounds like if you, you met the perfect storm or two, two elements coincided that you accidentally found a very one-dimensional ball flight, which can never be underrated in terms of like the confidence that would provide someone standing over the ball, knowing that one thing is going to come out of the barrel of a gun. And number two, a golf course that suited that particular flight. But I want to go back a little bit and you kind of fell right into my next question in terms of Cran Soucier and your success there. And maybe anchoring on your comment of, I go into events more often than not with low expectations is that also an event you try and dial down your expectations after having such a history of success on that particular golf course? Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, for me, I like I obviously have these high expectations of of myself, and particularly at that place, it's but like the memories are, are so good, and every time I play there, apart from the last year, I've played really well. I missed the cut on my first try as a as a pro, but then after that, I think I've finished second, seventh first first 40th or whatever so it's like when you have such a good run like that it's hard not to just every hole you know you've probably every hole I feel like I've birdied every hole I've played well and and I think that place in particular is just always going to have high expectations for me I believe yeah no I believe in myself no matter how I'm playing I can get it round in in a decent score and you know what it takes to get it round and you know what decent score is and growing up what I say growing up being on on tour early doors and people like you know you'll play this event and you'll get used to it and you'll know what's a good score what a good score is 
And the first year, obviously, I had no idea about that. And my caddy was pretty young as well. So, you know, that wasn't the massive experience help either. But now since, you know, like I say, and I know what I get a gist, particularly the golf course I've played a lot before, you know, I've played, played Switzerland five times. I go there, I can tell you what a good score is that day or in Germany or British Masters somewhere. I'll have a good idea. But I think that's key to your expectations as well. It has been for me that, and that's one thing why I like golf courses to be impossibly hard because then everyone's, ex- or that my expectations just go through the floor, which is great for everyone involved. And the other people probably don't have that. It's like, well, no, I still need to be making birdies. And actually level par comes in and you're third. And it's like, well, no, you know, you didn't need to push after all. And that's the big thing I think for me that probably makes sense is that's why I like it hard because it's like, well, everyone's going to find it hard. So you just got to, just got to get on with it, you know. Beautiful advice. I want to go back to Kranz this year as you started describing you and Mike sitting down and kind of inventorying each of the holes and it being fade here, fade there, fade everywhere, except for 18. My recollection after walking around Kranz this year, and I've, I've seen golf courses all over the world and I've seen narrow. I've seen Sahali narrow and Kranz this year is next level narrow. I, I can't think of any shot shape other than a dead straight rifle long iron on, is it the par, is it the par three third hole? Like 205 yards, maybe 250? Yeah, it's uh, like, I think it's like, between six and nine iron there also because of altitude and weather but yeah it's just dead straight and you miss it either side it's everywhere's a short side basically yeah i mean it is so darn narrow so anyway i wanted to go back and pull on that thread to kind of create some perspective as to fade for you is probably fairly darn straight but anyway i think Corey had a question well i I do want to talk about the accuracy piece because cameron and i like everyone in golf for the last six months at least has a big story has been Bryson. And the question is that we hear come up is, all right, is this something that everybody is going to try to duplicate? Is someone going to try to replicate this formula for, I'm going to hit it really longer because more and more the skill of straight and being able to hit fairways doesn't seem to be carrying as much weight, especially on the, the types of golf courses that the biggest tournaments are held on. But then you know, I, Cameron and I are sitting down, I'm, I'm pulled up your, your data golf and your performance. And it's like, well, this to play devil's advocate, this is a pretty good argument for if you hit it really, really straight and you're in the fairway, even on these, these difficult golf courses, maybe this isn't the way forward. And, and I'm not saying it is or not. I'd love to hear your take because I also know that by looking at your stats, you've gained like 15 yards since according to PJ tour, which is doesn't have a lot of measured rounds like back in 2016 for you, but but clearly you've gotten longer. This is like a, a big multi-dimensional question here of is it important and what are you doing to balance the need or the, a desire to hit it further, but also keep what your superpower is, is that you hit it in the fairway. I think for me personally, and it's something my dad's always driven home to me, it's like it's way better to be in the fairway than the rough foot. That's just... That's just black and white, and I get it and the stats and stuff, but if the flag's in the middle of the green and you've got 150, and I don't know what the same, I don't know what the same, hang on, can I pull this up one second? I think there's uh, the same from the rough. I don't I don't have it. I love that it where, was really close to you having it. Yeah. Where, it yeah, it's it. somewhere, it's somewhere <laughs> on my phone. But but I don't care. Like I'd much rather be in the fairway. You have control in the fairway. You could get any lie. And people say, well, you know, the average is three from a hundred yards in the rough, but the average is three from one 
70 in the in the fairway well you have control out of the fairway you know you can shape it in left or right you can do whatever you want with it out of the rough if you had 10 balls and you just threw them in there depending on the rough obviously you, it's unknown you, you're playing percentages then you're just trying to in my opinion you're just trying to get it as close as possible and play a percentage game but for me hitting it longer is definitely something we're, we're trying it's not something that i'm not you know going on a bryson diet or anything but we're doing it through, you know, technique, through just being in the gym generally, just biomechanics, the, the just gen- general stuff that's that's out there that's easily doable that, you, you know, you're just getting that, those 1%. But for me, I know we don't play it often, but Olympia Fields was a pure telltale sign for me that I felt I drove it well that week. I hit, you know, first round, I think I hit nine fairways, shot level par, I was tied third, pricing it one. And I love this. That's no offense to Bryson at all, but you can't compete in one fairway on that golf course. It's physically, physically impossible. Whereas if you went to TPC Boston, for example, you know, the fairways are much wider. There's much more chance you can let it go. Then you've, you've got more of a chance. You know, it's, I think it, it just depends on the golf courses that you play, but I don't believe that it's the, it's the fix to just put on a load of length. And I think you've got to maintain you've got to maintain your accuracy in my opinion because a lot i had a big argument with a couple of players before it's like well what is it a skill to hit it long or is it a skill to hit it straight and my opinion is it's a skill to hit it straight you know you give an amateur a week okay you hit it 200 yards with your driver hit it 210 yards they will find it or whatever it is you know it's possible to to do that okay you hit 10 fairways in a row that's a lot harder in my opinion I don't know about you guys, but I think that's way harder if you had a if you had a you know a set fairway, and that's that's why I think that's more of a skill than it is hit, than hitting it long effectively. I would go on record uh, describing both of them as a skill, each with uh, their unique challenges. Yeah, sorry. Uh, when I think about it, learn you can learn a skill. Sorry, I just think it's easier. To, I think it's easier to learn to hit it longer than it is to hit it straighter. Is my take. I think it's more important at the level that you're competing at, given the type of players and the type of golf courses you're challenged to beat week in, week out, to number one, just as a general rule, improve driving accuracy, and number two, as a specific rule for you, sustain, as Corey said, that superpower. But Corey had a follow-up, I think. Sorry, Corey. Well, you guys, you talked about that you're working to develop a little bit of distance and through technical changes. And I'm always curious to hear how really, really good players that are playing at the top of the game that are trying to achieve that 1%, those little marginal gains that add up over time during a season, because we really don't have an off season. You're getting ready. You're already getting ready for a US Open right now. So how are you balancing that desire to construct or change with the fact that you need to maintain a a certain level of performance and you don't really have a very long runway. So I I guess to ask that in a more clear way, how are you balancing your technical work along with your performance work? And and I'd like to to ask a follow-up with with that about your work with Steve Robinson, because I know that you've got some, a performance coach, which not many have. Yeah. So for me, the technical side of it, we, I wouldn't say we're out there well we're not out there on the range hitting drivers or whatever putting technical moves on it to try and get 10 yards like i have a move that i can put the ball up a little bit swing a little faster and that gives me the extra that i need for a particular shot but 
honestly, for me, it's just like mainly getting stronger, more consistent and just more efficient technically, I guess. So then better strike, better shape on it, better flight on it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the numbers just grow up gradually anyway. I would say I've noticed over the last, particularly since the end of 2018, I'm much more of a, a flatter player with with the driver. It's much it's much flatter. There's much less shape on it. I had a bit of the crisscross going on in 2018 where my shoulders were way left, my feet were way right, and I just got very wipey with it. And then sort of all of a sudden straightened that out. And now like I, I would claim that I hit like a, a hard five-yard cut with most drivers. Can I jump in real quick just to create some color around the comment that you made? How long did it take you to feel comfortable after identifying that that pattern of alignment, lower body to upper body was disconnected, was crisscrossed? How long did it take you to feel comfortable that you'd clean things up and it was playable? Well, to be honest, like I really like extreme change in my swing or in you know my feelings. So pretty much right away because the way I look at it and the way Mike always tells me, Mike or Pete, it's like, I can just trust it. So for example, when I squared up, my shoulders felt like they were aiming so far right, but I just knew that I could just swing hard as I want left and I wasn't going to hit a slice, <laughs> effectively. Yeah, it, I just knew it would do, and, and it did. And, you know, you get caught out occasionally, you still back up or whatever you want to do on it. But still, like, it, I just felt so much confidence in the alignment that I just felt comfortable straight away because it was like extreme. So I knew if I did X, Y, or Z, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be okay. Let's move into the performance work. So beyond the technical work, you've got three great technical coaches that I know do way more than just technique with Mike and Pete and Phil. And you've mentioned in this conversation that you're pretty structured with how you attack your practice. And I want to dig into what that looks like, because that certainly kind of speaks to us. It's, it's how we're, uh, I've read your book, Corey. Yeah. Okay, good. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. Well, a couple of years ago now, but I read it. <laughs> yeah. He's, bl- he's blushing. Yeah. No, that's yeah. Good. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah. You got me back there. Okay. So, I saw you on the putting green at TPC Boston and you were like, you were putting and you were taking out a notepad and you were writing notes and maybe that's not a common practice, but I would love to hear like, what does it look like when you're working with a performance coach? Cause not that many people do that. And what does it mean to be really structured? Like, what does it look like when we say that you're more structured than most? And that's a way that you're earning, you know, an edge over others. It first came really from, from my from my trainer. He, he works in football, and he was telling me that basically the lads come in for a foot, for a training session on in the morning. Everything's there, you know. The cones are set up on the pitch. The right lads were doing X, Y, Z. Off you go. You know, it, it it's done, and that speaks big volumes to me because growing up when I was in England coaching and Yorkshire coaching. Steve Robinson was one of the coaches and Graham Walker is another one who teaches Tommy Fleetwood some short game stuff. And, and I always loved going to them because it was like the coaching sessions because it, we would get there and it'd be, we'd get an itinerary. It'd be, okay, 9am is this, 10am is this, you're doing it. And, and it would just be a series of either you've got an hour to do technical work or you've got, we've got an hour of doing this short game challenge or we're doing this pitching challenge or we're doing this long game challenge or we're playing nine holes. And I just like that organization because you come away from it and you're like, okay, I, you know, 
I feel like you see the results, you've got something to go off and you see how you're doing against the other guys in the squad or, or whatever it is, you're beating your own personal best. But for me, you, you turn pro and that's it, it's gone. It, you know, you don't go into those sessions anymore. You're on your own. And, you know, this is no disrespect to Mike. He, he's down there. He can probably hear me. But <laughs> Mike Mike didn't do these, the, the group coaching sessions. That's not the way, you know, he was straight out on tour teaching regular guys and, and tour players on. You guys know it. That tour players aren't really ones to sort of probably keep their, I'm sure there's a handful, you know, but keep their own stats and do all that stuff. So Mike wasn't sort of in that environment that i was in when i was sort of growing up with the county coaching so i love that structure 2018 i played well 15 2016 i won twice but i was like so so 17 and 18 again i won twice both those years but they were both a bit flat they were a bit meh like played okay didn't play well enough really so it came to the end of 2018 I, i had a caddy change and we basically I was like, listen, my trainer said, you know, I'm kind of fed up with seeing you practice. And he'd come to the Bears Club where I practiced in Florida and he'd be like, when he first ever came on board, he's like, so what do you do, you know, on a day? On a day? I said, well, you know, we go go to Bears Club, we hit some balls, hit some chips, hit some putts, maybe go play and, and that's it. And he's like, right, okay. And then never said anything because he was new to the team, didn't want to, you know, cause any issues. I started then speaking to him about, so, you know, this practice, what, what do you think? And then we started adding a couple of things on Trackman. And at the end of the end, of two, so he worked with me in 2018. And then I was like, right, you know, I've, I've had enough of this. Like, I want to do something that I've thought of a long time ago. And I, I wrote a bit of a blueprint when I was doing that in 2015, but I never really had the balls to sort of, to do it really. And then 2019 came and I was like, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it. I, I'm, I feel like I, something needs to change we need to improve somehow and and i know that dave allred who works with the francesco and stuff that it was that kind of vibe i was like well you know that's worked and i want to give it a go so i brought steve on and steve basically to put it black and white he just manages my practice so he we him with his knowledge of drills and skills and stuff like that will along with me and my input and and he will look at my stats it will be a case of right, okay, I want you to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C today, right? So he will set out my day every day that I want. We sort of have a schedule and, and he'll put it together and he'll say, right, you're doing this and I'll just go and do it, basically. Um, we've done this for a year and a half now and, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely been beneficial. I think it just you just actually come off your practice sessions and you're like, actually, okay, that felt good today or that didn't feel good or that was terrible performance or, you know, you actually have feedback from, from how your day's been. And it's not just a case of, well, I've hit a thousand balls today. Do I know if I'm any better or not? Because that was, that was the, what it was. I was coming away from the range and I don't really know how good that was today or if it was good. And, and I think part of that was honestly, was the, was the, was me being afraid of going on a, I mean, I use flight scope now, but, going on the flight scope and being like, actually you only scored one out of 10 on that drill and being like, well, that's really shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> so excuse my language, but like, you know, I was scared. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be doing that and, and having one out of 10. Yeah. So part of, part of it was that as well. But I, like I say, I felt something needed to change and, and that was it really. 
Yeah. And so you're surrounded by experts in uh, the fitness world, experts in the performance world and experts in uh, full swing, short game and uh, putting technique, but you're not around them all the time. And you mentioned the word blueprint. And I think it's a, it's an important word that I want to pull on. You mentioned you have a performance-based blueprint that allows you to do things in practice to give you a grade at the end of a practice task or at the end of an entire day that tells you, did I get by or did I get better today? Do you have the same blueprint that exists in your putting performance? And if so, how do you check back to that blueprint? And do you have the same blueprint that exists in other skill capacities? For instance, your driving and your approach play, your ball striking skills. And if so, how do you check on those? Listen, we've, we've not sort of got the perfect system yet. We, we've got something in place that that we're trying to, to develop with one of my sponsors, funnily enough. So we're trying to put that together. But yeah, for all the aspects of the game, we, we've we've worked out things and challenges that we do on a, a regular basis that that can go i guess into this into a system and, and give us feedback on okay today you know put it poorly but actually you, you know your wedges were great or whatever it is and and we we have it for everything so for the time being we get good feedback really yeah, maybe better better way. I'll just ask specifically. I'm talking about you get on flight scope and you're not performing well on a certain task, and you recognize that well. Max Fitzpatrick's corridor of club delivery with the driver is level on attack angle, swing direction that's four left of body alignment, and that produces X flight. Do you actually look at your numbers in that much detail to know when you are within the corridors or beyond boundaries that you don't want to get beyond? No. So in terms of you know. I would class that as like technical stuff, you know, looking at my numbers and I would say I never do that. Like particularly in a performance task, if I was to do like a, a challenge or something, I'm just, okay, it's 160. How do I hit 160 basically? So I, I would do it that way. I would do look at my numbers away from that and just practice them, just keep them in the, in the corridor or whatever it may be, because I, I basically had a, we tried to make a change well, a month or so ago where I was just aiming a little further left and we just didn't want the path to go more than X amount. So then obviously I'm hitting balls and I'm just keeping an eye on that. It's not something I'm like super anal about that I keep on top of, but it's just sort of keeping an eye on it really. Am I right in assuming you're having this conversation from somewhere close to Wingfoot? And if so, I want to jump into a conversation about your prep for what may, if it goes to plan, and that's the USGA's plan and the Wingfoot agronomy staff's plan, be the most difficult test of golf that potentially you faced and potentially the entire field has faced. Are you at Wingfoot? I am. I'm, um, yeah, I'm about 20 minutes away. Great. Give us a prediction on or some insight into what you're seeing from the golf course with the realization that clearly this is going to probably uh, be released after the event. But nonetheless, I think it's really interesting insight into world-class player, top 20 in the world, how you're seeing a golf course and what you're looking for in prep. Yeah. I mean, for me, I played it, I don't know what day it is anymore anyway, but I played it earlier, a few days ago. The roof was thick. The course was a little softer than it's going to be for US Open. But yeah, it was it was great. Uh, it was really it looked really really tough. Did actually lose a ball, uh, so that wasn't great. But uh, it was literally you hit offline and you you're spending two three minutes looking for it if you didn't keep your eye on it. Honestly, not that Mike needs to forecaddy very much, but you need to send him out there forecaddying next time. Then. Yeah, well there you go, there you go. I'm hoping there's plenty of volunteers next week. Let me tell you. 
but yeah, for, for me, it was just sort of when I played it last, it was just sort of getting a gist of how it's set up, how it's looking, you know, and just simply getting used to the course course routing and all, all that sort of stuff. The, the re- really basic. When I go down, when I go back on Saturday, probably do a bit more short game around the greens, get a, more of a feel for for pins and stuff like that. Really, that's sort of what I would uh, what I would do. But I want to get it get used to the place before the week goes out, so I don't have to, you know bust my balls basically the week of the uh, the tournament because I we Harding Park which was it wasn't really up my street but we we didn't get in until Sunday night late and sort of Monday is going to be a bit of an off day and then Tuesday you go back and Tuesday I'm playing a practice round and it's six hours and it's just like you want to just you just don't want to be there basically for six and a half hours on the golf course so I'd always planned to come here earlier and have a, a good look at it anyway but I definitely didn't want to be in that that category again where I was I was sort of having to sort of chase my own tail really yeah can I go to Harding Park real quick because being a straight or even left to right player of which I coach one in Daniel Berger that was a difficult golf course for him he felt like he had to on the fly make some modifications and kind of sling from the hip to produce a draw flight even when the wind was favorable but then you get on the back nine and you've got non-favorable wins, wins off the left and shot shapes. You're still wanting to curve in, into the wind. And it was a really difficult thing. What do you do in that situation? I didn't like it at all. The golf course, I, I wasn't a fan of the golf course. And, and like you say, it didn't really set up, set up well for me. I just felt like it was a bit of a slog, to be honest, me personally. I felt, well, I'll give you a prime example. I missed the fairway on two by three yards. And I'm hacking out with, I had a nine wood in the bag purely for the rough. And I'm hacking out, I'm hacking out with a nine wood and I've missed the fairway three yards. And then about five holes later, I'm looking at Brooks on whatever hole it was. And he's on another fairway and he's got a fine lie and he's just slicing it over a tree. And, and that to me just said it all really about the golf course. And that's what, funnily enough, I, I'm looking forward to at, at wing foot is, there is some holes that run alongside each other, but you have to hit it very, very, very far offline to get on their fairways. All the rough is even, so it doesn't matter whether you miss it one yard or 20 yards, you're going to be in just as bad a lie, basically. But for me, I, I really noticed that I had to move the ball right to left on a few holes. wasn't really a, a fan of that. That was, like you know, like you say, that was tough. That was tough for me, in all honesty. But yeah, just obviously, I wish if I'd have drove it straighter, then it would definitely have been a little bit easier but even even that it was it was just very very long i felt as we talk about those majors and the elevated pressure that comes along with those big events that you've done well in you've performed well under that pressure you've been a Ryder cup player a walker cup you've won two playoffs i was looking back i was going through the video of the four footer you made at Jumeirah in Dubai for uh, probably the biggest win for sure of your career at that time. And it's like this tricky, I mean, it's like a little downhiller to that front pin. And I, in the interview, you said, I've never been more nervous. And you described that physiological response. You said that you were physically shaking, but you delivered. I, I would love to hear kind of what coping strategies you lean on. And maybe that's through self-talk or how you, how you've made it through to come out the other side on the right end in those moments that are really, really pressure packed. This is a question I get asked a lot. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Cause I didn't <laughs> no, ask, no, no, I, no, I no, said I'm you had won kidding. two playoffs. I didn't say you were two for three in playoffs. <laughs> no, 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 no. no in, in all seriousness, people ask me this question and like when it comes to, 
my mental side of it, I don't work with anyone in particular. For me personally, when I just feel like I'm in the, the heat of the moment, I'm just in the heat of the moment. It's like, I don't always recall what I was thinking at that time. My honest answer would be, I just purely have the belief in myself that I can beat the other guy that I'm playing against, whether it's, you know, playoff, whether it's coming down the stretch, whether it's just on a Sunday or, or Thursday, whoever I'm playing with, it's like, you know, I'm just out to, to just play as well as I can really. And, and that's, I wouldn't really say I have any sort of theory or way that I handle anything in particular. It's just something that I, I feel like comes naturally, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. So you let your grit and determination override the shaking hands and you end up making the putt and beating the guy next yeah, to you, right? basically. That's basically, beautiful. Yeah. Great advice. <laughs> <laughs> so if we look five to 10 years out, what is the mission map? What does the goal list look like for Matt Fitzpatrick? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's to world number one, win a major, win multiple majors. That's the goal, really. I, I don't feel, well, I know I haven't probably bar one, maybe on a, on a Sunday. I don't feel I've fully contended in a major yet, which is, is disappointing. But at the same time, I've played my best golf last year and, and so far this year in my career, in my opinion. Stats would also probably back that up too. So that's a good thing for me. I feel like I'm, I'm getting better all the time and particularly getting more comfortable over here playing in the US against the, the, the guys over here. So my main goal is to just compete in the majors this year, really sort of, give myself a good chance and, and sort of not play, my, play myself out of it early doors. And I just, you know, want to be in the, the final few groups or just have a, have a chance just uh, to sort of um, yeah, give myself the opportunity. Are you as structured with the goal setting process or as you are with other parts of your game? Well, we had a team meeting at the end of last year and um, I kind of wrote some goals down because my manager, Ted, thought about, you know, maybe write some goals down. So I was like, yeah, probably a good idea. So I started reading them, reading them out and I quickly got shot down by Mike and everyone else in the team saying that's stupid because if you don't do, if you don't start achieving them, then you're going to, your expectations will go through the roof and then you're, so yeah, we, we quickly got rid of that idea. <laughs> yeah, got it. Well, I know speaking for Cameron, I mean, I, I love the way you approach it. It definitely speaks to our ethos and, and how we like to. So you're easy to cheer for, man. We'll be cheering hard for you to reach those goals. And I know you got a lot of big golf that's coming up with the way that this season is going to shake out. So we're appreciative that you shared some time with us, man. We really appreciate no, it. No, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thanks a lot, guys. I look forward to seeing you next week, mate. Shake your hand. All right. Or at least give you a high five. Great. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Cheers, Thanks, bro. boys. See you later. Bye, mate. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.